From NPR News in New York, this is the Bryant Park Project. Overlooking historic Bryant Park in Midtown Manhattan, live from the NPR studios, this is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. News, information, aloha. It means hello and goodbye. I'm Allison Stewart. It is Friday, July 25th, 2008, the last day of the Bryant Park Project. And the most interesting thing happened last night that's fitting. I want to tell you this story. It was really a bittersweet moment. I was at a a T-shirt store in uh, Brooklyn called Neighborhoodies, where you can make your own t-shirts. And I went in there, and literally sitting there is one of our audience members looks at me, and this woman looks at me and goes, Allison. And she was getting a t-shirt made to wear to our going away tweet-up party tonight in New York City. She wanted to have something special to wear, which I thought really just sort of encapsulated how important our audience has been to this show. So I thanked her for listening. And and I realized, you know, people always thank people at the end of shows. So I'm just going to do it right in the beginning. Thank you to the audience for all your support from the beginning of the show and especially in the recent weeks. You're such a part of the show and you help make it live and breathe 24-7. To our staff, thanks to each other for working so hard and caring so much and just being so hilarious. And thanks to NPR for launching this show in the first place and giving us the room to grow. We have two great hours coming up. The ultimate emergency Crawlwitch, Robert Crawlwitch himself, will join us live in the studio. The big news stories of the past year, BPP style. A fresh edition of The Ramble as well as some of our favorite guests, Ben Harper, Rattlesnake Wrangler, Jackie Bibby, so much and more. But we do want to get to today's news headlines with the BPP's Mark Garrison. This is NPR. Thank you, Allison. Democratic presidential candidate Barack Obama spoke before around 200,000 in Berlin yesterday. He was steps from where the Berlin Wall once divided east and west. Walls are built with bricks and mortar. Speeches are made of metaphors and moments. The walls between the countries with the most and those with the least cannot stand. The walls between races and tribes, natives and immigrants, Christians and Muslims and Jews cannot stand. These now are the walls we must tear down. Obama travels to France today. His Republican rival John McCain tweaked him on the media coverage. The throng of adoring fans awaits Senator Obama in Paris. And that's just the American press. (laughs) McCain kept a sense of humor as he campaigned in Ohio yesterday. He stopped in a local German restaurant. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice is on the road, too. In a speech today in Australia, she said Pakistan needs to do more about Taliban militants hiding there. There's been a spike in attacks on Afghan territory. Elsewhere in South Asia, a series of explosions in Bangalore, India. The string of blasts was deadly and synchronized. In Texas, they're cleaning up after Hurricane Dolly. A full 15 counties are federal disaster areas. The wind and rain did around $750 million damage. In China, being one in a million is not much of a compliment. It just means there are 1,300 people just like you. The place is huge, and apparently the Internet population is booming too. Chinese government figures say there are now 253 million people online. This even in the face of strict government control of access. If those numbers hold, that means China has passed the U.S. to become the country with the most people online. That's your news for this hour. Now back to the one we worship, Allison Stewart. This is NPR. <laughs> you got big troubles if you worship me, babe. Thanks, Mark. 
On this last day of the BPP, we're taking a look at some of the big stories that we've covered. One of the biggest stories on our watch here at the Bryant Park Project was the assassination of former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto back in December. She had recently returned to Pakistan after years of self-imposed exile to lead her political party in opposition to President Pervez Musharraf's government. The news flashed while we were live on the air that Ms. Bhutto had been attacked in some sort of suicide bombing. And it was the first time that we went into breaking news mode. Four hours of live radio to cover the developments included reports from the scene. One memorable moment was when we spoke to a member of Ms. Bhutto's media team, Farah Ipsahani, who was at the hospital where Benazir Bhutto died. Here's a clip of that interview. Um, in, inside the hospital, it's more it's workers from the Pakistan People's Party and all through the grounds of the hospital outside and on the streets now they're burning posters of press sheriff's political party. Electricity lines are being cut off and people people are crying and in disarray. Is it clear when Ms. Bhutto died? Or yes. Location. Uh, both. Did she die at the hospital or was she killed yes, at the scene? Yes, yes, yes. She passed away at the hospital. They took her to an operating theater as she was injured in the suicide bombing. And she passed away at the hospital. You obviously sound incredibly upset. For our listeners, can you put into words what it is you're feeling right now? Ms. Kutcher came back from a very comfortable life abroad. She came back to fight these forces of extremism. She came back to try and bring Pakistan back towards a secular democracy. That was Farah Ispahani on the day that Benazir Bhutto passed away. Now, just this week, there's been a development in this story. On Wednesday, Bhutto's former security chief, who was next to her at the time of the suicide bombing slash shooting, was himself shot to death in Karachi. He was expected to testify at a United Nations probe into her death. A Scotland Yard investigation concluded that Bhutto was killed by a suicide bomb and not by a man who fired a gun at her. Pakistan's government blames the attack on a Taliban commander. In this country, the story of the year so far has been the 2008 election. Now think back to last summer. It seemed that Hillary Clinton was a shoo-in and John McCain's campaign was almost out of cash. At the time, the BPP got wind that former Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee was going to be in our building, in the studios. Now, we were only in the pilot stage, not really yet booking big guests. So my then co-host, Luke Burbank, saw the opportunity, and frankly, he poached Governor Huckabee from another show. 
Luke challenged him to a game of ping pong, which of course we videotaped and put on our blog. And I challenged the governor to say something nice about another man from Hope. The last governor of Arkansas who ended up in the White House has a very different set of beliefs than you do. I'm curious, did you and the Clintons, did you ever end up in the same social circles? Did you ever end up running into each other? Did you ever seek advice from Bill Clinton once you became governor? You know, we've had a very cordial relationship. He's nine years older, and even though we both come from the same small town of Hope, Arkansas, he had moved away before I was born, but we knew a lot of the same people. Uh, When he was governor, I was president of the Baptist Convention in the state. We had a number of conversations. You know, I've never hated the Clintons. I still don't. I have great respect for them. Uh, He made a lot of mistakes, a lot of personal ones. But you know something that that I think should not be forgotten? There's two things about Bill Clinton I tell Republicans. It drives them nuts, but here it is. Number one, don't let it get lost on you that a kid out of a very small southern rural state aspired to be president of the United States. This kid came from a dysfunctional family, alcoholic, abusive father, and yet he didn't just aspire. He was elected president of the United States not once but twice. That is an affirmation of the system. And it's a wonderful testament to give to every kid in America that no matter where you've come from, you've got an opportunity to do something extraordinary. The second thing, and this will really rankle some, um, again, my Republican colleagues, Bill Clinton and Hillary went through some horrible experiences in their marriage uh, because of some of the reckless behavior that he has admitted he had. I'm not defending him on that. It's indefensible. But they kept their marriage together. And a lot of the Republicans who have condemned them and who talk about their uh, platform of family values, interestingly, didn't keep their own families together. Governor Mike Huckabee on the Bryant Park Project. Huckabee used that charm and considerable political skill to become a surprise superstar in the early primary season. He went on to win contests in Iowa, Kansas, West Virginia, and Alabama before dropping out of the presidential race. Along the way, he became uh, best pals with Chuck Norris and got himself a role as a commentator on Fox News. Showing you're behind to other dudes. Those who've been listening to the show since October will probably remember this song by gospel rapper Dooney DePriest. Now, it was originally a public service announcement from Dallas, Texas, aimed at telling kids to pull their pants up. Well, we posted the song on our site, and it quickly generated quite a conversation, specifically that one line I just repeated. When a savvy blog reader, Andrew Jones, questioned whether the lyrics were using homophobia to scare kids into pulling up their pants. Now, this was the first example of how a story started on the web and then migrated to the show. When we read your comments, we went out and booked Dooney DePriest to ask him about the song. He had just posted an apology to the gay community on his MySpace page, so we got him on the phone to talk about it. He claimed the song did not attack homosexuals, but he also said he really isn't down with the gay folks either. It has nothing to do with the gay community because, like I said, I was dealing with the N-word, too. You know what I'm saying? As well. So, hey, like I said, I wrote an apology to the gay community, and that's basically about all I can do, you know? The issue, Dooney, is that by making it uncool, you're saying being gay is uncool. Being on the down low 
as you no, write in your lyrics, well, is the what uncool I'm saying thing. Well, not being gay is uncool. I think the fact that a lot of, 80% of the young men on the streets are ignorant of the fact of what it truly means. And so my thing is to educate them. Now, whether their sexual preference is to be a homosexual or being gay, that's their problem. I'm the street, I'm the street priest, and I have real uh, good Christian values on what I believe in, and I am against homosexuality, but this is not the reason why I wrote the song. My thing is to educate them. Now, if they still want to wear their pants below after being educated and being made aware of what that truly means, and if they want to be, uh, be known as being a homosexual or on the down low or gay, that's their sexual preference. I have nothing to do with that because only God can judge them. I'm not here to judge them. I say that in the beginning of my rap. I'm the street priest. I'm not here to judge. If you want to be gay, that's your problem. That is something you have to deal with between you and God. My, my whole thing of doing the song was to create some peer pressure amongst the young people to where it changes their mindset to where amongst their, their group of peers to where they're saying, hey, let's pull up our pants, man, because I don't want to be considered gay. That was Duny Priest. Now, since we aired that story, Dallas Deputy Mayor Dwayne Carraway, who started the pull em up campaign featuring the song, has dropped the idea of charging a fine for saggy pants. City attorneys had argued against it, saying the law would be hard to enforce and could raise constitutional issues, and, well, Carraway took their advice. But those arguments didn't deter the Chicago suburb of Linwood. That community just passed an ordinance which will charge anyone showing three inches or more of their underwear in public a 25 fine. Web editor Laura Conaway joins me in the studio. And Laura, this was really sort of a watershed moment for us here at the BPP, this story. Yeah, Allison, this is when I first realized that we were doing something that I had never felt before in all my time of doing journalism. I mean, you always talk about tips coming in from listeners or readers or whatever. But this was an instance where I was very early days of the, of the active live blog. I was just trying to blog something. I threw it up there and it became news because people were reacting to it. I didn't even necessarily know how to handle having a listener come in and say, I think that I've identified something in this that you're not looking at. What were your concerns? Um, well, for one thing, it was an NPR piece that I had blogged. Mm -hmm. And here was a listener who had something to say about the NPR piece that wasn't in the original NPR piece. And how exactly did you move forward with that? And then it was just also just the equalizing force of having listeners push back against something and say, we think there's a further story here. And we've had other stories develop that same exact way. That same exact way, yeah. And I think it really just sort of blew open the door between you know, the studio wall and the rest of the world in a way that is amazing. All right, we're going to have a couple other examples of that coming up later on the show because it's a two-hour extravaganza. Bring it. <laughs> Laura Conaway, thanks for sticking in the studio. Also coming up on the show, Krollwich in non-emergency form. We're also going to take a look at some of our favorite guests, singer Ben Harper, Mark Riding, another example of a story that came off the blog, and uh, Jackie Bibby, just because we all like Jackie Bibby. Love him. Love It's fun to say. He's fun to listen to. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Rambles up next.
Hey, thank you for listening to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News online all the time at npr.org slash Park. I'm Allison Stewart. And one of the things we always wanted to do with the show is we didn't, we wanted to be a news show that didn't discriminate, that the, the, the definition of news was broad. And I think we perhaps made it broader every day during the ramble. I'm a broad. I'm a broad. Two broads doing the ramble. Let's hit it. This is editor Trisha McKinney, Hello. who is going to ramble with me today, our guiding force, our editorial force on the yeah. show. Um, so let's ramble to Beijing, shall we? Yes, we shall. You know, you know there's some Olympic Games going to be happening there. I heard something soon. about that. So, you know, we've done a lot of stories, actually, in the ramble about things that China is doing to prepare uh, people of Beijing for foreign tourists. Right. They had to learn how to stand in line, yes. which is one of them. Yes. Pollution issues. Yes. And, you know, things like uh, renaming items on menus so that people who are, you know, like retranslating things into words that people here and especially the U.S. understand. Well, the latest one is there's a new campaign of the list of eight don't asks. So people of Beijing are not supposed to ask foreign tourists some questions that apparently are common to ask each other in China. So you're not, according to this list of eight don't ask, they're not supposed to ask people about their income. So Uh people, I don't know, do they just walk up to you and ask how much money you make? I don't know. Uh, don't ask about age. Okay. I like that one. I broke that rule yesterday. I asked somebody how old they were. <laughs> really? You can ask somebody that if you if you think they look a lot younger than they are, I think. Uh, don't ask about love life or marriage. Don't ask about health, hmm. which I think is weird. Can that you say weird. how are you? Maybe you can't ask probing questions about people's health. Don't ask about someone's home or address. Don't ask about personal experience. Don't ask about religious beliefs or political views. That one makes sense. Yeah. And don't ask what someone does. Huh. It's all on this poster that they put out. I like Olympic the uh, etiquette. The blogger said, "Are there eight, uh, there eight don't tells?" Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of people have responded on on different blogs, and this is all in a Reuters story. And um, one of them was like, "I want one of these. Po- uh, I want my housekeeper to read it. Perhaps then she can stop asking me how much everything is." <laughs> my next ramble. Uh, apparently, the FBI is celebrating its centennial, huh. and uh, as a part of it. There's a list of 10 myths about the FBI. This list is circulating. Now, what makes me laugh is that this is from the FBI's website. So, um, that would be called a tautology. <laughs> there you go. That's why she's the editor. I went to grad school. Um, some of the myths, uh, for example, myth number nine, the FBI has an X-Files. They say they do not they don't. have an X-Files. But listen, but the, every paragraph has a sort of... Well, here's this line. Yes, we do have files on some unusual phenomena like cattle mutilation, UFOs, and Roswell, but generally only because people reported something and we made a file of it. That's one of them. The other one is myth number four. The Bureau routinely spies on the American people. They say no, they don't. Of course they say no, they don't. But here's this sentence. It's always been a delicate balance between harnessing the tools at our disposal to solve crimes and prevent attacks and upholding the civil liberties of Americans. Over the course of a century, we've made some mistakes. (laughs) But they've been few and far between compared to the vast amount of work we do every day. I believe that. That's at FBI.gov if you want to read the list. All right. Uh, I have one. So how would you like to go to a hospital where there are vultures outside your window? I love this story. <laughs> this is such a funny story. This is from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. So it's a, there's a hospital, an orthopedic hospital of Wisconsin. I think it's in a Milwaukee suburb. And apparently vultures have recently started congregating outside patients' windows. They are turkey vultures. <laughs> they are 
large. They're brownish. They have bald red heads. They have a wingspan up to six feet. They started showing up about three weeks ago. <laughs> they like the pre-op rooms on the third floor. Oh, no. <laughs> they sit on ledges and windowsills outside and look in. That's unbelievable. Um, some patients are not too thrilled. Yeah, I can the imagine idea. that. <laughs> you know, it's not the kind of hospital where, I mean, you go there to have, like, knee surgery and stuff. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, they're, you know. That's People don't think. really tend to die a lot in hospitals like this, but there you go. Do you like Scrabble? I do. I lo- I've played Scrabble with my since my I was a little kid. My yeah. grandmother used to play, and she used to let me look at all her tiles. Um, well, Scrabbleus is not paying fair. Says Scrabble, I the maker. Scrabbleus. Scrabbleus. Thank you. You're right. It is Scrabbleus. I just can't pronounce it. It's on Facebook. I used to play that all the time. And I then know. I stopped well, I kept losing. They don't like that. Scrabble apparently has filed suit against the developers of Scrabbleus. Did I say it right? Yeah, you're saying okay, it right. Okay, I just never said it out loud, frankly. <laughs> um, so many people on Facebook. My friend Ellen is obsessed. Hasbro sent a letter to Facebook asking the social networking site to shut down that word. Scrabulous. Thank you. At noon Pacific time Thursday, but the game was still up. The suit claims copyright infringement under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. So okay. we shall see what happens. Triple word score. Trisha McKinney, thanks for the ramble. Thanks, Allison. And everything else. One of the amazing things about producing the BPP here at NPR's New York Bureau was working with the talented reporters who've called this place home way before we showed up. That includes NPR's esteemed science correspondent, Robert Krolwich, who became a mentor, a standard bearer, and a butt saver. The emergency Krolwich became an all-too-familiar practice. You know, when a guest didn't show up or a story failed, we would always have one of Robert's pieces standing by because, one, they were always good, and sometimes, well, too, well, frankly, sometimes they're a little long. <laughs> Gave us time to get it together. Yeah. And that was the birth of the emergency crawl witch. It goes a little something like this. When you're doing a live radio show like the Bryant Park Project, sometimes things go wrong. Guests sleep through their alarms. They get stuck in traffic. And sometimes they get better offers. And when they do, the BPP is ready with a piece by NPR's esteemed science correspondent, Robert Krolwich. Get me Krolwich! We call it Emergency Krolwich. But, Mr. Martinez, you said only to use Emergency Krolwich in an emergency. Damn it, man, this is an emergency! Control room, deploy Emergency Krolwich. All right, I don't know if getting canceled qualifies as an emergency, but all I know is it brought Robert Krolwich into the studio live this morning. Thank um, you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. So what did you think when you first heard it that we were so, doing this? I was so flattered. <laughs> I mean, really, it really was. I mean, that's one of the nicest things in the world. <laughs> and this uh, esteemed science correspondent is now I, kind of like an ESC, I call myself, oh, secretly. There you go. Modestly, by myself, in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing that you can offer our staff and our audience is a little bit of perspective on the pursuit of creating 
creative and informative radio. It's something you've really been dedicated to for a good long time. Yeah. Um, we found something from 1978. This is a segment that aired a morning edition that was uh, or somewhat of a regular feature you did to explain economic concepts. And it was called Let's Talk Luden. Yes. You want to set so, this up? Uh for a little while, I was looking around for a dramatic device that would allow me to repeat the same phrase or the same thought over and over and over again without insulting the audience. And I imagined a man who was going to a country, which I decided was somewhere in middle Europe, called Luden, a country where they mostly manufactured cough drops and where there was many, many interesting things to look at, but we never really knew what. And this man, who had dreamed, dreamed, dreamed of going to Luden, bought a learning Luden record. And the thing about the Learning Luden record is that it gave me the chance I needed. So the Learning Luden record, as I guess you're about to hear, yes. requires a repetition. So if I say to you, and then a lady comes translating and says, excuse me, but your valise is under my chair. Now you try. That's the, sort of the standard thing. And then he would get very, well, you'll hear, I guess, I don't know, let me yeah. hear what you got there. Let's hear the clip. Okay. Norman Bronstein is going to Luden, the fascinating north-central European city where some of the world's most beautiful cement collections are housed in the Luden Blumenhardt, the cement palace there. But before he goes, like most travelers, Norman has bought a record to help him learn some key phrases in Luden so he'll be able to get around easily and avoid serious problems of communications. So let us join Norman Bronstein now as he prepares to learn some phrases from his language record, Let's Talk Luden. Bang, 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 bang. I'm going to be talking a little Luden very soon. I got this record here. It's got an interesting here. Side one. And we'll see what we get here. Okay. Phrases for the street. For the street, okay. Phrase one. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, that is my foot you are touching. Mm -hmm. Again. Excuse I... me, that is my foot you are touching. That's funnier okay. now that Larry Craig no is happening. I'm sorry. <laughs> Now you try. I can't do that. That's too quick. Well, I didn't hear the. I didn't hear the phrase exactly. Do it again. That was very good. So Robert, these segments developed <laughs> quite a following. Well, yeah. So eventually, what would happen is he would drop the needle on something that was economic, and so the guy would go, you know, Cura, we defalto," and he would say, "What does that mean? Is your city in default?" And then he would wonder what that meant, and then the business of learning what default meant would be first in Luden, then in English, and then with the phrase, "Now you try." And yes, I did this a lot. You could well imagine people were a little puzzled uh, by these kinds of things. But you kept going forward with it. We did. We did. And this isn't one of those things I guess you kind of you kind of decide at some point in your life that um, that the adventure you're on is worth the adventure and that you want to disturb people or tickle people or thrill yourself. But what you want to do it at a level which you can feel in your veins. And um, that is not always what is invited by the mm -hmm. companies you work for. It is not all, it's almost always not what is expected. And when you do it, when you have a really, really, really good time, two things can happen. One is you have a really good time. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that people out there can sense that you're having a really good time. And they get a little excited, a little envious, a little happy with you. And then you get a bond. And sometimes you have a really good time, and they think, what the? And they hate you. <laughs> and you live right between those two poles. And if you don't, if you don't take that chance, you lose the opportunity to be really, really happy or and to have many people really, really mad at you. But it's more fun in a way, and it's more, in a sense, in a moral sort of way, it's more 
important to be out on that limb than to be safe near the trunk of the tree, I've always thought. And so that's, I guess, <laughs> maybe an appropriate morning Very. sermon of some sort. Very much so. Now, you, you've taken your spin at hosting. You're filling in for All Things Considered at one time yeah. with Brenda Wilson. Oh, yes. Yes, you put together an Well, no, these were desperate days. This was, uh, this was like, uh, that was when the NPR was very, very small, and there was nobody around on New Year's Eve at all, yes. except me and Brenda. Okay. So we had to do something. And we had no tape and no reporters and no nothing. This puts the John Hockenberry situation, you know, like he has at least people to talk to. Right. We had nothing. Nothing. So. Well, you made something out of nothing. Let's take a listen. All right. And now, Brenda Wilson's Nightmare, Part One. Last night, Brenda Wilson was at a New Year's Eve party, and there were many famous people there, but every time she was introduced, she failed to catch the person's name. You may recognize this famous voice of 1981, but alas, Brenda did not. Listen closely. Brenda! Brenda, I want you to be Bob Trotter, the model. This is Brenda from Public Radio. Say hi. Hi. <laughs> Brenda, watch out for this guy. He's an absolute terror. <laughs> accusation without any uh, justification. Also, no evidence uh, that uh, we support or promote uh, uh, terrorism. Here's what I, did. I went. I went into the archives and I got oh. just everybody that was on the news that year. Bzignu Brzezinski and, and all athletes or whatever. And I just threw blind and then I designed a cocktail party in which people would always be introduced. You couldn't hear their names and then a voice would come on. Brenda never knew who they were but the audience <laughs> had to guess. I, this went on for 45 minutes. It was the whole All Things Considered. That's what we did the whole time. Well, I'm happy to hear that that was encouraged. <laughs> no, that it wasn't happened. encouraged. Well, I'm happy to hear that it allowed. happened yes, and that it, it allowed. Happened. It happened, um, yes. A little bit yeah. like parts of this program here. Robert. Right, so that's the cool thing is yeah. that you guys, you know, everybody goes out and plays and you take your shots. Yeah. Absolutely. We can't thank you enough for all the help that you've given us and, sure. and how supportive you've been and that you've allowed us to use your name in such a way. <laughs> At least you heard the name. It wasn't like, oh, I was a yeah. Robert Krolwitz, thank you very, very much on no, behalf I've of everybody. I've been honored to be an esteemed science correspondent. Oh, man. <laughs> so cool. Robert played an integral, integral role in helping us reach another goal, by the way. I want to give you a little bit of backstory. Every day we do a segment called The Most, where we look at the most emailed, most popular, most read stories in the web. And as a part of that segment, we keep close tabs on the NPR.org most emailed list. Well, one day we decided we wanted one of our stories to make the most NPR list, even go to number one. So BPP producer Dan Pashman took up the challenge and after careful study devised a foolproof plan. Here's how it happened. Well, Ali, I looked at the common topics and themes in the NPR Most Email list to find out what types of stories and what subjects tend to make it to number one. Here's what I found. Food stories and recipes are huge. Folks love those. Neti pots, which are homeopathic devices used for nasal irrigation. You pour saline solution into your nose. That was one of the most emailed stories of 2007, the neti, the neti pots. Uh, student life. Star Wars. A lot of Star Wars fans in NPR.org world. Republican presidential candidate Ron Paul. We all know Always from our show. Yes. Anything on Ron Paul gets a lot of attention. Interesting scientific discoveries and studies Okay. get, get a lot of uh, emailing. Quinoa, which is a grain, a story about quinoa, was also one of the most Very emailed popular. of all of 2007. It was on there forever. Forever. Uh, then one of the always popular big ones on the list, NPR's esteemed science correspondent, Robert Krulwich. Yes, yes. Then there are the classical arts, theater slash opera slash classical music. 
Uh, and then, of course, the whole This I Believe series, which are first-person accounts, often of personal tragedy slash loss and the overcoming of said loss. Very popular. So with all these elements in mind, I put together a piece that's my attempt to get to number one on the NPR.org most emailed story list. Here you go. I was making quinoa cakes shaped like Yoda the day my dog, Pavarotti Skywalker, died. He was chasing the tennis ball, playing in the yard, when he was crushed to death by NPR's esteemed science correspondent, Robert Krulwich. Come on, boy. Come on, boy. I haven't made Yoda-shaped quinoa cakes since. But I believe in moving on, and I know the only way to move beyond my beloved Pavarotti Skywalker's death is to enjoy the food we enjoyed together so many times. So I'm in my apartment in Brooklyn, where I bring one and a half cups of water to a boil in a medium saucepan, wash and drain a cup of quinoa, and simmer the quinoa in the covered saucepan. While the quinoa cooks, I like to prepare my palate for the feast by using a neti pot to irrigate my nasal passages. Mmm, saline solution. As we all know, a good nasal irrigation usually takes about 20 minutes, which is also how long it takes the quinoa to absorb all the water. Stir one lightly beaten egg into the quinoa, separate the mixture into clumps, and arrange them on a baking sheet, each in the shape of Yoda. You all remember what Yoda looks like, right? After allowing the cakes to chill in the fridge, put them in a hot-oiled skillet. That sizzle was always Pavarotti Skywalker's favorite part. While the quinoa cakes fry, I read up on a fascinating study from the scientific journal Child Development. This one says that if you teach your kids that their intelligence is capable of increasing, they do better in school. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Eight to ten minutes later, you've read the piece and the quinoa cakes are golden brown, which means they're done. Seeing them in my kitchen brings back a flood of memories. Pavarotti Skywalker and I sure had some good times together. I want the healing to begin, and I know it must. But something is holding me back. Hey, NPR's esteemed science correspondent, Robert Krulwich. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm, I'm all right. I know we haven't, uh, haven't spoken in a while. It has. It's been a bit of a time, yeah. Would you, uh, would you like a quinoa cake shaped like Yoda? A quinoa cake? This thing here? Shape, mm-hmm. It's shaped like... Let me... Mm. Actually, these are, these are pretty good. They uh-huh. sure are, Robert Krulwich. They sure are. Oh, and Dan, I... I meant to tell you before. I'm I'm really sorry that I I killed your dog. That's okay, Robert Krulwich. That's okay. Breaking bread with someone has never made me feel so whole. And now I'm pleased to report that I've welcomed a new puppy into my life. I named him Ron Paul. Here, boy. Dan Pashman, NPR News, New York. Now that piece shot to number two with a bullet on the NPR.org most emailed list. But just when it looked like it couldn't be stopped, another story on NPR.org got picked up by Yahoo News and it was posted on Yahoo.com and that was that. Some dumb story about how being sad is good for you. Whatever. Anyway, well, we never got the piece to number one. But we're going to give it one more shot. We're posting it on the site all over again, and we're starting from scratch. Email that story, people. 
If we can get it to be the one of the most emailed stories of 2008, it can be our show's lasting legacy. And remember, if you enter a bunch of email addresses separated by commas, the site only counts that as one email. You have to put each address in its own, hit send, and then enter the next one. I mean, what else do you have to do this weekend? Now get to it. Next up on the show, Ben Harper from the BPP Archives. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. Jacob, what is wrong with you? Oh, uh, this one's this one's on Dan. <laughs> this one's completely on Dan Patchman. It is our last day, and you and Patchman are playing Huey Lewis in the news on the return. Uh, no comment. <laughs> no comment. It's like a New York journalist. Hey, welcome back to the Bryant Park Project from NPR News. We are on digital FM, Sirius Satellite Radio, and online at npr.org/slash Bryant Park. I'm Allison Stewart. I take no responsibility for this music. And on this last day of the BPP, we are bringing you some new stories, but we're also revisiting some of our favorite guests. Could you please turn this off? I'm going to give people some nice ear sorbet to get that out of their heads. Since day one, music has been a big part of the BPP. We've had more than 30 musical guests perform in the past year. And one of the first and one of the best, a lot of people say, is Ben Harper. He didn't just perform. He actually gave Luke Burbank and me a a pep talk as we embarked on this big NPR experiment. But we began by talking about Ben's latest album, Lifeline, which was recorded in just one week. He told us about the importance of embracing imperfection. Did you go back and do things again, or is it just that first take was the thing? Oh, and every once in a while we do two takes, but usually it was the first thing, which enabled us to do record and mix it in in a week. All right. If we we started doing two, if we went two and three takes down the line, it would have been a different kind of a session, and it'd be a different sounding record. What do you mean a different kind of session? Well, it's just a different kind of session. It's it's gonna the record's gonna have a different feel. Are you okay with there being? Are you okay with there being certain little imperfections because that's sort of part of the yes. thing? Yeah, we all had to embrace that and, and know and be brave enough to say that's what's going to give it its, its uh, strongest voice is knowing that the rawness is a part of the sound. Was that hard to do, to embrace that? It's been a growth. I, I don't look back on my own work, but I think if I did, I'd see myself letting go up to this point and finally truly letting go more so than I ever have as far as my, my you know, being in, inhibited by my, my own uh, definition of perfection. Is that a confidence thing too? Because yeah, this is, is a fairly new radio show and every time we mess up, we look at each other and kind of go, oh, maybe if we've been doing it 10 years, 
uh, and people know that we're legit. Maybe is that part of it for you? No, I was not worried about the legitimacy issue, nor should you guys be, because you're behind the mic. And Thank you, you know ben what? Harper. It's your gig, and that's why you're talking and other people are listening. We hope. No, that's just, <laughs> that's it. And at a certain point, you have to embrace that and own it. Uh, there's no room for false modesty. It's more irritating than uh, overconfidence. There's never enough people with good ears in your media, in your profession. So uh, I'm excited that you're out there and, and doing it. And, and NPR, what a great, great, I mean, it's NPR, man. You guys got the gig. Yeah, we Tell do. me about it. This is that's, pretty sweet. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's significant. All the tote bags you can eat. Pretty, pretty you guys, awesome. you guys got tote bags coming out of the, <laughs> the woodworks here. Okay. You need a water bottle. We got tote, water bags, bottle. Get tote bags, man. We'll get you one too. No, but you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's <laughs> NPR for crying out loud. Well, all of the Ben Harper fans are saying, "You two, be quiet." Yes, yeah, Ben Harper play. <laughs> stone you then turn and disown you don't you let them take the fight out of you they'll walk all over your name till they find someone else to blame don't let it take the fight out of you secrets hide their lies inside hidden alibis don't you let it take the fight out of you they put the world on a hook it's worse every time I look don't let them take the fight out of you I would rather take a punch Than not give you a shot I'd rather find out who you are Than who you're not Should've known better than to mistake Business for love Should've known better than to mistake a fist for a glove. It will be in your honor till you're not needed any longer. Don't let them take the fight out of you. Don't believe the headlines. Check it for yourself sometimes. Don't let them take the fight out of you. The lies you live become you. The love you lose, it numbs you Don't let it take the fight out of you They'll say that you've arrived That's just a high-class bribe Don't let it take the fight out of you I would rather take your punch Than not give you a shot Rather find out who you are Than who you're not Should've known better than to mistake business for love. Should've known better than to mistake a fist for a glove. There's always someone younger, someone with more hunger. Don't let them take the fight out of you. They'll say you're one and only. Straight up leave you lonely, don't you let them take the fight out of you. 
transplant patient waiting for a donut on the let him take a fight out of you like a half empty balloon after a party in the corner don't let it take the fight out of you Another of our favorite guests came from our blog. Back in the early days of the show, we did a couple of stories about transracial adoption. We started from the perspective of a young woman of color who was adopted by a white family. And her not always positive experience sparked a big discussion on the blog about race and family. And one of the blog comments was particularly striking. It was written by Mark Riding. He's an African-American man, a school administrator living in Baltimore, and he is trying to bring a little white girl into his family. He wrote about the challenges of raising a child with a different skin color. Mark agreed to talk about it on the show. I asked him how the little girl came into his life in the first place. My mother-in-law is a, um, a saint, and she has for many, many years taken in uh, foster children. And this little girl came to us five years ago as a foster child, and that's pretty much how she came to us. How old is she now? She is eight. And where are you in the adoption process? We are um, headlong into the process, although it has been um, far more scrutinous than the last adoption process that the family went through. And why is that? Well, only one person has been uh, brave enough to say it out loud, but they, um, it is because we are a black family and she is a little white girl. And I think it really is causing some um, concerns um, amongst the people who are at the adoption agency. When it came time to decide if we're going to adopt this girl into our family, she's been a foster child for five years. She, you know, really kind of was part of your family, it sounds like, anyway. Was the discussion, did the discussion of race happen between you and your mother-in-law? Um, no, not when it came to terms to adoption. The, uh, the race conversation came up when we first took her in uh, five years ago. But uh, in all honesty, it was a very brief conversation. We had a conversation as she was on her way up the steps. And what was the conversation like? The conversation was like, um, I didn't tell you, but the little girl we're taking in is a little white girl. And that was pretty much the extent of the conversation. And so we all kind of had to immediately adjust ourselves to thinking about um, how to be sure not to make it a difficult place for her to be. How many homes has this little girl been in? She was in 12 homes before she came to us. 12 homes before the age of? She was in, uh, from the age of three to four, um, she was in 12 homes. My goodness. Actually, a little bit before three uh, and not quite four. So now that you're in the adoption process and she's a little bit older, have you had the race conversation with her? Has it come up? You know how sometimes kids will just let that one loose at the most inopportune (laughs) moments? Um, There's been no real conversation. She has numerous times since we've had her uh, been uncomfortable about race, and she's shown that discomfort. Recently, we had another, another one of those incidents, and... She was upset because um, a friend of mine introduced her as, oh, this must be your little foster sister. And that really hurt her feelings because she didn't understand why someone would say that she was a foster and how they know and things like that. Mm. And so we did have a conversation about race that day because we had to kind of preface that, well, it's obvious that we don't um, look the same, and so people are often curious about that. So that's, that's about the only kind of conversations we've had. How do you plan to navigate these kind of encounters with people? Because they're going to continue to happen. They certainly are going to continue to happen. Um, 
the best we can, all we can do is try to be thoughtful and make sure um, that she is not more affected than she has to be. I mean, certainly she's going to be affected. She's not going to not notice these things. But we try to put in perspective and we try to just stay as happy as possible as a family and in that way hoping that uh, we can defray or diffuse some of this uh, tension that she's going to be feeling. It's interesting. I think in African-American families, speaking from my own experience, I'm married to someone of a different race, and he often remarks about how in our family we talk about race. In black families, you talk about race a lot as opposed to, you know, he's he's a Jewish guy from St. Louis. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I think it's been a little bit of an education for him on that front. Uh, Do you think you'll speak about race very frankly in front of your daughter? No, we don't at all. And in fact, that was one of our biggest challenges. Um, I had no idea how much I talked about race um, as a black family. I just know I, you don't have a dinner conversation without asking who the players were when you're talking about someone that happened at work that day. Um, and I had no idea how much we actually talked about race until she came to our house and we were more conscious of it. So I think um, as she gets older, I'll try. We'll try to make it more of an honest house. We don't want it to be obvious that we're kind of shading things or talking in code, but um, as she's so young at this point, we just don't even know what effects it's having on her, so we try to limit the race conversations as much as possible. That was my conversation with one of our favorite BPP guests, school administrator Mark Riding, a few months ago. Our editor, Tricia McKinney, checked in with Mark to get an update, and he sent this along. He says his family is about a year into the adoption process, and the status remains pending. This is from his email. I'm going to quote it. Quote, call it the willful sloth of bureaucracy. We'd be lying if we claimed we're shocked. We're not new to being black, and we've come to expect certain things, and we've resolved that we're not in any big hurry. It's kind of like being in a common-law marriage. The differences will mainly be on paper. Our family still gets curious looks and occasional comments, but I've noticed that those incidents rarely hit it, the family grapevine, anymore. And our little girl seems, as always, more concerned about her American Girl doll organizing our insufficient recycling and a budding crush on Zac Efron than complex race relations. I am anticipating that her middle school self-discovery phase will be newsworthy. It's too bad the BPP won't be around in five years to follow that up. sampling a world records held by the Texas snake man, Jackie Bibby. Most rattlesnakes suspended by tails from his mouth, 11. Sitting in a bathtub with the most rattlesnakes, 87. Sharing a sleeping bag with the most rattlesnakes, 112. Sharing a sleeping bag head first with the most rattlesnakes. That's a different record. That's 30. He holds. He also holds the world record in the sport of rattlesnake sacking. It's a two-man sport that is pretty much what it sounds like. He and his partner got 10 rattlesnakes into a sack in just over 17 seconds. He has dominated the event for almost four decades. 
Now, Rachel Martin and I talked to him the day before this year's National Rattlesnake Sacking Championships, and he said he wasn't sure if he'd be sacking this time around. Nothing left to prove. We asked him how the sport works. Describe that partnership between the guy who's pinning down the snakes and the guy who's holding the sack. Well, the one who's picking the snakes up is called the pinner, and the one who's holding the sack is called the sacker. There you go. That's logical. Yes, and it's very important that you have an individual sacking for you that you trust and that knows what he's doing because that individual has to block snakes. He has to talk to you about where the snakes are. He has to help you go through the process of getting through the snakes because this is a timed event, so, you know, you got to be moving rapidly. And any time you move rapidly in conjunction with rattlesnakes, you're going to get a lot of bites, and rattlesnake bites are nothing nice. Have you, I'll ask you about that in a minute, but let's talk about your record. Less than two seconds a snake. Seems like you'd have to be able to predict what snakes are going to do and how you do this. You have some kind of sixth snake sensibility? Well, I'd like to think so. I've been doing this for a long time. And part of it's luck of the draw, just like any other timed event. If it were calf roping or anything else, where you, uh, it's a timed event. The snakes that you draw, because you have no idea what 10 snakes will be in your bag, because you're handed a bag of snakes out of a pile that's been sacked up somewhere else. And then you have two minutes with four judges to arrange the snakes in a way that you want them to be in before you begin. At the end of two minutes, they shoot off a gun, you have to go. If you're ready, you raise your hand. When you drop your hand, they shoot off the gun. Because you have to immobilize the snake's head with a pinner prior to picking him up. If you don't do that properly, you get a five-second penalty. If you are bitten by one of the snakes, you also get a five-second penalty. Wait, if you get bit, you get a penalty? Isn't being bitten punishment enough? No, (laughs) ma'am. Apparently not when you're sacking rattlesnakes. How often have you been bit, Mr. Bibby? Well, I've been doing this for 40 years, and I've been bit eight times, seriously enough to require hospitalization. And do you stop when you've been bit? Do you just say, I'm out, or do you keep going? One of the worst bites I ever received, I received on Saturday, and I wouldn't go to the hospital until after I completed the contest on Sunday because I was was winning. And finally, when are you going to make up your mind about competing? Is is someone going to egg you on and say, come on, Jackie Bibby, I know you can't do it this year, and then you're going to say, fine, I'll do it? Probably, yes. It's an ego-driven sport, and I've been a thrill-seeker throughout my life. So when the adrenaline gets to pumping, you know, I'm 57 years old, I'm bald-headed, and I'm a little bit overweight. But, you know, when I get in that pit and that gun goes off, I forget all that, and I go to work. So what happened? Did Jackie Bibby succumb to the charms of the rattlesnake pen? Well, we called him up after the competition. Jackie, how did it go down? You showed up at the event, and you were on the... Adrenaline got to pumping, and uh, those youngsters, you know, running around with their chest puffed out, I had to get in there and show them the old master was still uh, able to come back. You do it. Were they really egging you on, or did you just say, I can't tolerate these egos? necessarily. They really didn't want me to sack, because they knew I'd probably beat them. Yep, that's Jackie Bibby, Texas Snakeman, world record holder, and once again, reigning national champion in rattlesnake sacking. That's it for this hour of the Bryant Park Project. We are always online at npr.org slash bryantpark. I'm Allison Stewart. This is the Bryant Park Project from NPR News.